You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. The question burning in your mind is, after we've stopped with Revelation, is he going to let us sit down after the third song? No, remain standing if you're able. If you're able, if not, if your legs are tired, if you can't, that's fine. You can be seated. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we'll spend the next few weeks just in the book of Matthew and, and the story of Advent and the story of Christ's coming. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Father, we bow in this moment. We say thank you for the beauty of your word. And Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy and gentleness towards us. Father, we're thankful that you didn't leave us where you found us. That, Father, you brought conviction. You brought someone into our life that would tell us the truth and the gospel. And Father, you bring conviction and you draw us to yourself. And Father, that surrender to you was not just something that happened maybe years ago, but it's something that needs to continually happen day after day as we surrender ourselves. As Paul said, we are called to die daily. We die to our sins, die to our flesh, die to our desire, die to our pride. That we are to die to our plans, we are to die to our preferences so that you may live through us and that we may be on the mission that you've called us to. Father, God, us in your word this morning. May you be exalted in all things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, when I read the, the book of Matthew in this opening chapter and we go through all of the, this father had this son and Sometimes we get a little bit of the circumstances within that. I would imagine that when you've read through the Bible in a year, or maybe you've read through certain portions of the Old Testament, that you come across some of these chapters in the Old Testament, and, and maybe you skim those and move a little faster, because number one, you can't pronounce all the names, say Genesis chapter 5 in particular, where you've got all these names listed there, and it's this so-and-so begat this so-and-so. If you use the King James Version, it uses that word begat. This father had this son, and then this son had a son, and this son had a son, and we track that genealogy all the way down. And here in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chooses to start his gospel with a genealogy that looks a lot like what we see in the Old Testament. The only other writer to do this is the Gospel of Luke, and his, his genealogy is just a little bit different. We want to focus on Matthew today, on why he did and what he did by including this at the very beginning of his gospel. Matthew wrote his gospel some 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Matthew had an opportunity to live and see after Jesus' resurrection and ascension what the New Testament church was going to do. He, although we don't have a lot of record of what he did in the book of Acts, matter of fact, his name doesn't come up much at all. We don't really know what Matthew's doing. What we know about Matthew is that when Jesus called him, he was a tax collector. 
And we also know that when he was included with the 12, the other 11 weren't too happy about this guy being part of the 12. One of the reasons is that he was viewed as a traitor. He, he was viewed as a guy who was working on the behalf of the Romans. He was a Jewish man, but he was working on behalf of the Romans, being paid by the Romans to excise taxes from the Jewish people. And not just a little bit of tax, but a lot of tax. So the Jewish people looked at Matthew and they saw nothing but a traitor, a worthless individual. So when Jesus calls Matthew to follow, Matthew not only walks with Jesus those three and a half years, but we know that some 25 years later he writes this gospel and he starts out his gospel very much like an Old Testament text. Now, we have to ask the question, of all things that Matthew could have done, and when we look at the other gospels, how they start, we don't see anything like what Matthew did. So we have to ask the question, why would Matthew start out his gospel with a genealogy? Well, one thing I think is very important to understand is that for the Jewish people, genealogy, family tradition, family lines are very, very important. Knowing who your ancestors are. And up until 70 AD, up until 70 AD, the Jewish people could trace their heritage all the way back to the 12 tribes and of course to Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. They knew who their ancestors were. But in 70 AD, when the temple was burned to the ground by the Romans, all of those records that was housed there on the genealogies was lost and lost forever. So today, if somebody just asked me after the first service, so I've wondered that for years, do the Jewish people today, those who were Jewish, do they know what tribes they came from? And my answer to that is no. Now, they may claim to come from a tribe, but they have no evidence that they can walk back through to say, I am absolutely part of the tribe of Judah or Reuben or Gad. They simply don't have the records. Now, there is one tribe or one group of people, the Levites, and there are people today who claim to be part of the Levites, the priesthood, because of how their last name is worded. The Levinsons, those folks who were Jewish, would claim that, that they're probably part of the tribe of Levi. However, for the most part, they do not know. So for Matthew, he starts out his gospel with this lineage from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And we need to ask the question, why? And I think I, I, think I know the question. I think I know the answer to the question. Turn over to John chapter 8. Let's go over to the Gospel of John. And there's a text there that I want to show you that Matthew certainly would have been fully aware of. He was there when this happened. And, and there was rumors swirling around about Jesus' identity. From the moment that John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan... And then in Luke 4, when Jesus goes into the synagogue and he proclaims himself to be Messiah, that he has come to set the captives free, from that very moment on, there are rumors that are swirling continuously about Jesus' identity, specifically, who is Jesus' father? Now, we know what Jesus claims. Jesus claims that his father is none other than God himself. At one point, the Pharisees accuse him of blasphemy for making that statement. But in John chapter 8, in this gospel, we see the tensions between Jesus and the religious rulers growing to where it's almost like boiling over the pot. It's like a boiling water on a pot, and it's about to boil over. In John 8 and John 9 and John 10, what John documents for us is a moment in time where the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees are, is at a boiling point. It's at the point where it's about to come over the top of the pot. And one of the issues at hand here in John 8 is Jesus' identity. Now, in chapter 8, verses 31 and following, Jesus basically says to the, the religious rulers, he says, 
I know who your father is. You claim that your father is Abraham. In other words, the Pharisees took great, great pride in being able to trace their lineage all the way back to the father of the nation, Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. So they would say to Jesus, we know who our father is. And Jesus says to them, well, if you were the offspring of Abraham, then you should be acting a whole lot more like, well, Abraham. Notice what he says in verse 39. They answered him, these are the Jewish leaders, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. In other words, Jesus says, if you are the descendants of Abraham, then you know what Abraham said and you know what God said to Abraham about the covenant promises. That through Abraham, the entire world would be blessed. And that the minor and major prophets were expecting an offspring from Abraham. Who would, who would bring blessing to the entire world. So Jesus is saying to them, if, if you are Abraham's son, then you should act like Abraham did. You should believe the way that Abraham did. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me. You see, Jesus, not only being a man, but also being God, could see right past, well, the outward man. He could see right to the contents of their heart. And what he could see in that moment is that these men that were standing in his presence, arguing with him, these men are plotting his death. As early as Mark chapter 2 in Mark's gospel, we see there that the leadership of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, would say among themselves, this man must die for the nation. There's no way that we can tolerate this man. This man is a problem and it must be dealt with and the only way to deal with it is to kill him. So right there in that moment, Jesus looks past the facade. He looks past their religion. He looks past the outward man, and he sees their heart, and he says, I know what's in your heart. You are plotting to kill me, an innocent man. He says, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. In other words, Jesus says, the only reason you're planning to kill me is because I've told you what is true. He says, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Now, Jesus makes kind of a, an initial um, he kind of fires a shot across the bow here, and he says, Abraham's not your father, but I know who your father is. Now, later on in the text, in this particular chapter, Jesus is going to blow the lid off of it when he looks at those religious leaders, and he says, let me tell you who your father is. Your father is none other than Satan himself. Can you imagine how that would have went in that moment? I mean, if they're plotting to kill him, they're definitely on board with killing him now. Because the most religious people in society of that day, the ones that everyone looked up to were the Pharisees, their, their long robes, their phylacteries where they had scriptures in these little leather pouches on their forehead. Everyone looked up to them. And Jesus says, your father's not Abraham, your father's the devil because you are plotting my death, an innocent man who simply had come to tell you the truth. But I want you to see the response of verse 41. They said to him in response, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus fires a shot across the bow. Guess what the Pharisees do? They fire one back. And they expose a rumor that had been passed around for a very long time. And especially after Jesus' death and they placed him in the tomb, this, this, these rumors got even more. You know the rumors about him not resurrecting? Those rumors went right along with these rumors, and the rumor was, is that Mary had committed adultery. That Mary, who obviously was with child, but Joseph is not the father. And at one point, Joseph was thinking about putting her away. We'll look at that next week. 
that Joseph was going to just divorce her, separate, because Joseph thought that something's up here because I'm not the father of this child that she's carrying. And so rumors would swirl for years that Mary had had an affair. One rumor was is that she'd had an affair with a Samaritan. Now think about this. If, if the Jewish leadership who hates Jesus, if they can place doubt in the minds of people about Jesus' lineage and even include in that lineage a Samaritan who the Jewish people hated with a passion, if, if they can get the people to believe that Jesus is the result of Mary and an illustrious affair with some Samaritan man, do you think anybody's going to follow him? Because they, the Jewish people knew that Jesus had to be a descendant of David. Another rumor that was passed around is that Mary had had an adulterous affair with a Roman. And these rumors were swirling, and it placed in question Jesus' actual identity. So what the people were hearing was on the, hearing was on the one hand that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus, the only person ever in the history of the world, was conceived without a human father being involved. Or Mary stepped out on her relationship with Joseph, being betrothed to Joseph. She broke that betrothal vow, and she went out, and she had a relationship with either a Samaritan or a Roman, and Jesus is the result of sexual immorality. That's the rumors that were flying. Matthew writes his gospel some 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and no doubt Matthew was hearing over and over again that same rumor, and so I think what he does when he opens his gospel is what does he do? He sets out at the very beginning of his gospel and says, let me clear up who Jesus is. We would expect that from a tax collector, right? Kind of like a CPA top mind who wants all the ledgers to balance out, who, who wants the, the income and the outgo to all equal up. We would imagine that a guy like Matthew, who was a tax collector, who wanted all the numbers to work out, we would imagine that Matthew would say, let me just go ahead and fix this problem, if I can, right from the very beginning. You see, all of us, every single one of us, have some brokenness in our families. You may have quite a bit of anxiety in your heart right now as we come into the holidays. You know, not everyone when we come into the holidays is excited about the holidays. For some people, it reminds them of the brokenness of their home life when they grew up. It reminds them of just how broken their family was, how that maybe when they were a kid that the mom and dad were fighting all the time and eventually led to divorce. And all you remember about Christmas as a kid is the brokenness and the hurt and the anger. Maybe, maybe there's some parts of your family who are living in such ways that that just really trouble you deeply. And, and the whole idea of having all these folks together in a house and, and everybody laughing and smiling as though, oh, everything's okay. We, in fact, you know that everything is not okay. There's this red elephant in the room, but we never talk about it. And it's something from our past or something that is happening right now. And the brokenness of your family is what brings this cloud over your head every time we move into Thanksgiving and Christmas. And quite frankly, you can't wait to get to January 1 to put it all behind you. You're going to be surprised this morning, or maybe not, that Jesus, his family tree, has just as much brokenness in it, maybe more so, than yours. And, and when Matthew gives us this genealogy, I think the purpose of this is, is twofold. One, to point back to God's faithfulness generation after generation after generation after generation. 
that God's sovereignty and providence is working through all of that brokenness. And number two, I think the reason Matthew is giving us this is to say not only is God sovereign, but God is at work in spite of the brokenness. So let's pick it up. Verse one, the book of the genealogy, that phrase is a very important phrase that goes all the way back in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis. We see that phrase in Genesis, where it points along the way in the book of Genesis, there are genealogies that are given forward to say, okay, here's Adam down to Noah. That's in Genesis chapter five. And then later on, you'll see an expansion of that family tree and how that, that God's creation, his human beings, who are the only ones upon the face of the earth to bear his image. We get an account of, of the lineage of that human race and God's work among them. But notice what he says. He says that Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You'd be surprised at how many people believe that Jesus Christ, that's his first name and his last name. I will admit when I was a kid, that's what I thought because I had two names. So I was thinking, okay, so Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. That's not actually the case. His first name being Jesus is that name that was given to him. That is, that is that name not only given to him, but that is the name that has all kinds of connections back to the Old Testament. He's the deliverer, but that, that Christ, that is a title. So Jesus, his name, Christ is his title. Christ, Messiah, anointed one is what that word means. And Matthew starts out in the first verse, the first sentence. Jesus is the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Now, I know that you understand this, but it's worth saying that the way these genealogies work is that someone six, eight, 10, 20 generations later is still called a son of Abraham. So that's how David is referred to as a son of Abraham. How that Josiah is considered a son of Abraham. Although we know in our context, he is the great, 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 a whole bunch more greats in their grandson. But the way they saw it and the way they understood it and the way they would document it is these are the sons of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So what I want to do is I want to just give you story after story after story, just a few, not all of them. That would take quite a bit of time. I want to give you just a few stories right out of the first section of this genealogy. This genealogy is divided into three sections. The first section tracks from Abraham to King David, 14 generations. The second section starts with David and then moves to Solomon and runs from Solomon all the way down to the time of the division of the nation and the Babylonian captivity. You pick it up in verse 12, and the next thing you know, we're talking about the Babylonian captivity and what happened there. So we have four, three sections, 14 generations each. Now, not every name is included in Matthew's genealogy. There are a lot of names that are left out because Matthew had as his intent to simply show that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So let's start with Abraham, the father of the nation. If you go back to Genesis 12, you don't have to turn back there, but you can if you want to. We have this man who comes on the scene. His name is Abram. And out of nowhere, God speaks to Abram because Abram was a faithful man, leading his family well, and God had blessed him. And God says to Abram, who will eventually become Abraham, he says to Abraham, I am going to make a covenant with you. In other words, we're going to enter into a contract together. The only thing is, is this contract is completely dependent upon me and not you. In other words, everything that I say to you, Abraham, I am going to fulfill. It is on me to fulfill it. 
I just want you to be obedient to me. So God says to Abraham, first of all, you are going to have a massive nation that comes from you and Sarah. There's going to be so many of your descendants that the sand on the beach will not even be able, you count the pebbles on the sand, it won't even match the stars in heaven. And not only that, but your offspring is going to become a blessing to the entire world. That, you're, that what comes from you, you are going to be able to bless the world, the entire world, through your offspring. God says, I'm going to give you a land eventually. He says, I'm going to give you a nation out of, out of you and Sarah. But here's the problem. Here's the big problem. Sarah has not been able to conceive a child. And, and so at this point in their life, as, as God says to them, hey, you're going to have a nation that comes from you. They don't even have a child to point to. And Sarah has not been able to have a child. Eventually, after, after God says this, you know what Abraham does? Abraham packs up his family. He doesn't even know where he's going. God says, come and follow me, and I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. He has no idea where he's going. So Abraham, out of faith, sheer faith, trusting God, leaves everything behind. They end up eventually in Egypt. And the Pharaoh in Egypt is well known for, well, building his harem and acquiring lots of women. So before they go into Egypt, Abraham looks at Sarah and says, now Sarah, when we go into Egypt, here's what I want you to do. Do not tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Because Abraham is afraid of what the Pharaoh may do. So he concocts the story. Sarah goes along with it. And instead of trusting God in that moment and trusting what God had just said, that, that I'm going to take care of you, that you and Sarah as a couple are going to have children, that, that I'm going to bless all the nations. In that moment, Abraham is scared to death of Pharaoh, and so therefore he lies. That's the only thing he knows to do. Let's just lie about it. Well, it turns into a disaster. It turns into an absolute mess. All because in that moment, Abraham didn't really trust. Later on, we find that they're still not completely trusting God with this whole idea of having a child in their old age. So Sarah comes up with a great idea. Sarah's like, hey, I've got this handmaiden here, this servant named Hagar. Uh, Abraham, if you would, uh, if you can have a relationship with her, some intimacy with her, maybe, maybe she can provide a child for us because apparently God's not showing up here. I mean, that's the only conclusion you could come to. God said, I'm going to provide a child. Sarah says, we can't wait on God. We need to take action. So Sarah convinces Abraham to uh, be intimate with her maidservant, and they have a son named Ishmael. And I want you to know that from that moment, that decision, and what would happen as a result of that, even to this day, the war that we see between the Arab nations and Israel can be tracked right back to that moment, right there. Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael. So Sarah says, let's help God out because God's not following through. A lack of trust, fear, and they act on their own. Then, if you, some time goes by, still no son, still no child other than Ishmael. God says, no, that's not the promised child. I'm going to give you a child from your very own body. One day, they're in a tent. These three men come in. One of those men, all three of them actually, are not just regular men. And Abraham picks up on, are they angels? They're, they're speaking very lofty language, and Abraham recognizes that these are not just three travelers. And I believe one of them, the one who speaks, I believe one of them to be none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus, Lord, King, Son of God himself, right there in that moment, visiting Abraham and Sarah. And here's what he says. He says, one year from the day, you're going to have your very own child. Sarah's in the other room of the tent. You know what she does? 
She busts out laughing. Yeah, right. And she says this. She says, I'm all worn out. How in the world, in my age, am I going to be able to have a child? And this mysterious visitor, again, whom I think to be pre-incarnate Jesus making a visit, Sarah, is that Sarah laughing? And guess what? One year to the very day, they have a child, and they name him, get this, child of laughter, Isaac. Now, the reason I tell you this is because we often look at these patriarchs such as Abraham and Isaac and Jim. We often look at them with, with these spiritual glasses where we think that they're like superhumans, like, like they are superhuman beings where they don't have the same problems that we do. But right there in that simple story of Abraham and Sarah, you have two people who are wrestling deep down with the idea that God has made a promise and will he fulfill it? Or does God need our help? Leading Abraham to lie? Leading Sarah to make a decision about how to have a child that was way outside of God's will? What about, what about this next one? Look at this. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob. So we get to Isaac now. And get this. Isaac, we're not getting too much into his story, but Isaac makes some of the same mistakes that Abraham makes. Isaac also lies to cover himself. Eventually, Isaac is going to have some sons, and these twin sons, Esau and Jacob, even from the very moment of their birth, there's all kinds of tension and trouble. They're very, two, very much two different boys, even at birth. But what happens is that Esau becomes Isaac's favorite, and Jacob becomes the favorite of his mother, Rebekah. Now, in Jewish tradition, Esau, being the oldest, being the firstborn son, he is the one that will be blessed by Isaac. He is the one that will receive the birthright and the blessing. He is the one that will receive the heritage and the blessing from his father when his father's time comes to pass. Rebecca knows that. Jacob knows that. But because Rebecca saw Jacob as the favorite, Rebecca and Jacob come up with an idea to trick their father into giving Jacob the birthright and the blessing. And so in that moment, this very solemn moment in Jewish culture and in family life during that day, what was supposed to be passed to Esau was passed to Jacob. Now on the one hand, that was God's sovereignty, but on the other hand, you have a wife and a son who are deceiving and lying and conniving against their dad and their husband. What's interesting you need to know about Jacob is Jacob's very name meant usurper, liar, a fake. So get this, every time Jacob is introduced, hey, here's my family, hey, let me introduce you to my son, the liar. That's an essence what was happening with Jacob. And as Jacob's life would move on, these moments right here, these moments that he makes, this deal that he makes with his mom, that would haunt him for years and years and years. And as we look at Jacob's life, we find over and over again where he's lying to cover his own backside. But this next branch in Jesus' family tree, well, it's the most disturbing, one of the most disturbing. Look at verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, is Tamar, would that mean that, that Tamar is Judah's wife? Well, not actually. This is one of the most disturbing stories. And, and by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this on a G rating this morning. So adults, you're going to have to just track with me on some of this. 
I'm not going to get down to the details because I'm telling you, this is some R-rated stuff here. And all the teenagers are like, oh, I'm going to read that when I get home. <laughs> I'm going to keep it on the G level. So you'll have to kind of read between the lines because I'm not going to get too far. Because we do have quite a few kids in here this morning. So, so Jacob, the son of Isaac, eventually has 12 sons. These 12 sons are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. We know the story of Joseph and those brothers and what's going to happen here is there's one of those brothers is by the name of Judah. Now, when we were looking at Jesus and we were looking at John in the upper room in the, in the throne room of God, you remember that moment where the elder says, look, look at, the, look at Jesus, look at him. And, and the elder looks and he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah held quite a bit of influence all down through the Old Testament in the New Testament, and that the Messiah had to come from the line of Judah. That's what the prophets had said. But let's talk about this, not just a tribe Judah, but let's talk about the individual Judah, the one who was the father of that tribe. Interestingly enough, in Genesis 37, we see those brothers, and they are together on the farm working, and there's this one other brother named Joseph, and Joseph, get this, just happens to be the favorite of Jacob. So when you look at the patriarchs, you see the same patterns of, well, foolish choices being played out in the father and in the son and in the grandson. We just see it played over again. So that same favoritism that Isaac showed to Esau over Jacob, we see Jacob doing exactly the same thing among these 12 boys. And the favorite of Jacob is none other than Joseph. And Jacob would give Joseph a coat of many colors. And man, he had flown that thing in front of his brothers, and he'd go out there and tell his brothers, hey guys, I had a dream, and my dream is that all y'all are going to bow down to me one day. Isn't that cool? And the brothers began to hate Joseph with a passion. They were jealous. They were envious. And eventually, one day, they're out in the field working, and here comes Joseph kind of skipping. I always see Joseph skipping in my head. I don't know why. He's skipping across the field with his beautiful coat of many colors, and that coat reminded the brothers every single day, he's my favorite. You know, those brothers start having a conversation among themselves. Judah's involved, and he says, you know what we need to do? We need to kill that guy. You're going to kill their own brother? So they're all kind of together. We're going we're to kill this guy. If it hadn't been for Reuben, the eldest, getting involved, they probably would have killed him, but they still are in agreement. Something's got to be done. We can't tolerate this anymore. So they throw him in a pit. They eventually sell him as a slave, and Judah is all in favor. Judah is raising his hand. Yep, I'm all in on that. That's not the worst part. Judah would eventually marry a Canaanite woman. This is in Genesis 38. That right in the middle of the story of Joseph, we have this story, one chapter of Judah and Tamar. Tamar is not Judah's wife. Judah marries a Canaanite woman. And from that Canaanite woman, he has two sons. The first name's son is Ur, E-R. The, the second son's name is Onan. And these two sons, these two sons are the sons of Judah. And the first son, Ur, all we know about him is that he was so evil, he was so corrupt that God killed him. I mean, when you look through all the Old Testament, you look at all that God did, there are times where God wipes out a group of people over here, but when God wipes out an individual, one individual, because of the evil in his heart, that's pretty significant. So Ur, before God wiped him out, he had married a woman by the name of Tamar. So Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. But when Ur is taken out by God, 
there was a responsibility within the family, especially within Judaism in this culture, that this widow, this widow woman really should be able to have a child, an offspring. So what they would do is they would say, the next brother in line should become into a relationship with this woman and fulfill the role that the older brother could not fulfill. Oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. I felt it coming. I couldn't stop it. So Onan is supposed to step into that role and provide that for Tamar. But get this. Onan refuses. Well, he doesn't really refuse. He just disobeys God and disobeys the tradition at that moment and refuses to provide a child through Tamar. So guess what? God wipes him out. So both the sons of Judah are now gone, and all that remains is the daughter-in-law, Tamar. So some time passes by. Judah's wife passes away, and one day Judah's just passing through a community there, and he sees what he believes to be a prostitute. Again, keeping it very G-rated here. And he sees this woman, her face is veiled. He doesn't recognize her. He doesn't know her. He thinks it's just a stranger, a, a prostitute. And Judah decides that he's going to commit sexual immorality with this prostitute. As a result, this prostitute, whom he thought was a stranger, ends up pregnant with twins. We find that out later. And all of a sudden, the nation, when they find out that this prostitute is pregnant, they bring her out in accordance to the law, and they say, we're, we're going we're to stone her. Well, what was interesting is in that moment when Judah connects with this woman whom he believes to be a prostitute, that prostitute asked Judah, hey, can you give me a gift? So Judah gives her a couple of his own private things, things that were, were his, and she keeps them. Fast forward now, they're ready to stone her. And before they stone her, she has these two personal items of Judah, and she gives it to the leadership. Here, take this to Judah. Let him know who I am. You see, the prostitute that he thought was a stranger was none other than Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Yeah, you got it right. Judah, her father-in-law, has now has relationships with his daughter-in-law to which now she's pregnant, getting ready to have twins. Is that not messed up? I mean, that's in the Bible, folks. That's, that's in the line of Jesus. So not only do we have liars, we have adulterers, we have people who are committing sexual immorality, and from that relationship, and there in verse 3 it says, Judah, the father of Perez, is there. And notice how it lists this, by Tamar, that Matthew highlights that. Now, I've said this to you before. It's worth saying again. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that when Matthew had an opportunity, if, if Matthew wanted to present Jesus in the best possible light, would you imagine that when Matthew puts together this genealogy, wouldn't it have been real easy just to leave that out? I mean, there's other names that he leaves out. He, he could have easily just kind of skipped over that, hid that in the background, and only put forward the best of the best in the genealogy of Jesus, that way to paint a picture that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. But that's not what Matthew does. Matthew gives us the bad, the ugly, and the terrible all in Jesus' genealogy. And I'm only giving you some examples from the first 14 generations. What about, what about this next one, David? We know this one. We know this one pretty well. It says, and Obed by Ruth. See, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. This is down in verse 5. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Did you see that? 
Isn't that interesting how Matthew lists that? Matthew says that David begets or has a son named Solomon, not through David's wife, but through the wife of Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David should have been out with his warriors fighting. That's where David had always been. David had spent his whole life on the run. From the age 15, when, when he is anointed as king, it would be many years later, after he's ran from Saul for years and years and years. Saul almost kills him on multiple occasions. He's living in caves. He's on the run. Has very little food at times. Wondering, when am I going to become king? And finally, the day comes where David is anointed king over Israel. And from that point, the nation of Israel grows exponentially, not only in wealth, but in power under David's leadership. David has unified the 12 tribes. He's leading them, and they're, taking, they're overtaking the land and taking the land that is theirs that God had promised, and they are fulfilling the promises of God. David is at a pinnacle of his power, a pinnacle of his influence. He is the wealthiest he's ever been, and the nation is the envy of all the other nations. So why is it David out fighting with his military? That's what he'd always done, but not on this day. He decides... He's going to stay at home. And I think, the text doesn't tell us, but I wonder if this wasn't in his mind all along, that he's just going to take a little break. Oh, I need a break. I've been fighting long enough. But deep down, he's thinking about somebody else. Well, while his fighting men are out fighting, David comes out on the roof, his roof. And I believe there was a particular roof he was looking towards. I believe when he came out on his roof, he's looking at this other roof, which happens to be the household of none other than Bathsheba. But Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. So we have a, a massive problem here. But the problem gets worse because in that moment, his eyes look upon that rooftop and he sees a woman bathing on the rooftop. Now, if we go back, if we go back to Genesis 3, where does the fall begin? The fall begins when, when Eve looks at the fruit and she desires that it is good. So Satan was in the garden, but make no mistake about it, Satan was on the rooftop this day with David. And his eyes looks and he long tarries looking at Bathsheba. And then in his heart, he decides that he must have her. It doesn't matter that she has a husband. So the king is going to get what the king wants. The king has determined in his heart that It'd be okay in his mind, and I'm sure he justified it in his mind, that Bathsheba's going to be his. So he brings her, and uh, they become intimate with one another, and guess what? She becomes pregnant. And here we have a man after God's own heart. That's how the Bible describes David, a man after God's own heart. In other words, David's heart, mind was aligned with the purposes and the will of God. That, that David was the apple of God's eye. And in that moment, not only does he commit adultery with a married woman, but then he begins to lie and cover it up because now the secret is out. Now, now it's come out that, that she's expecting and, and David the king is the father and, 
So, so David's got to come up with some idea on how to fix this. So what he does is the first thing, plan number one, bring Uriah, who just happens to be on the, in the military, who just happens to be out there fighting, doing what he's supposed to do while David's at home doing what he's not supposed to be doing. He calls Uriah and, and has somebody provide Uriah with alcohol and food and drink and gets him drunk with the understanding that maybe Uriah would, would be with his wife and that could explain the pregnancy rather than it being his. But you know what Uriah does? Uriah says, no, I'm not going to do that because my men are out there sleeping on the ground. My men are out there fighting. And even if I'm at home, I'm still not going to participate. I'm, I have too much integrity. So David says, okay, well, there's only one thing left to do. We gotta, I got to get rid of the evidence. And the best way to do this is just get rid of him. He asked his military leaders to put him on the front line. And then that's to get him on the front line. Y'all pull back and you know what's going to happen. He's killed on the battlefield. And then... David takes Bathsheba as his wife. How convenient. David, the man after God's heart. David in the line of Jesus. Adultery, lust, adultery, lying, and murder. Well, his whole world comes crashing in on him. After some time passes by, Nathan the prophet comes to pay David a visit, and he shares a story with David, and he says to David, hey, David, let me tell you a story. And there's a story of this poor man who had a, this, one little, this one little lamb, and he loved that lamb. That lamb was like one of his own children, and this rich man comes in and just takes the lamb and kills it. And David's like, tell me who that was. Tell me who did it. I'll go fix this. I'll bring him to court. I'll make this right. And Nathan points at David with that big, long, I always imagine Nathan with a big, long, bony finger, points it right in David's face, and he says to David, you are the man. And in that moment, David is crushed, broken in his spirit, realizing all that he had done. He had been carrying this with him for years, trying to cover it up. But in that moment, the secret was finally out. Not just to Nathan, but to God. God knew all along. From that moment on, David's life, his family life, his home life is an absolute train wreck. Absolute disaster. You can look at David's life, if you could trend it on a plot line, David's life is just progressively getting better and stronger and more powerful, more money and more influence. But at the time of that, no disobedience, you can see it just trends straight down. Everything blows up. So in Jesus' family tree, we have broken branches everywhere. We've got broken people everywhere. I would, I would go so far as to say that from Abraham all the way down, even the names that are not listed, what we have in Jesus' tradition, in his family, in his family tree, are sinful, evil, disobedient people just like you and I. I would argue that every single human being in the line of Jesus, whether named or unnamed, whether we know their stories or not, every single one of them are broken people, every single one of them born into sin, every single one of them making choices every day, some that honor God and some that do not. And some of their stories are right here for us to see. Matthew includes them. So how in the world, how in the world is Jesus going to be any different than his family tradition? How can we expect Jesus to be anything more than just another broken human being? There are two schools of thought, well, there's more, but two predominant ones within Christianity. Now, this is not a cult belief. This is, this is within Christianity. There's one group of people who say that Jesus is, in fact, no different than his heritage. 
That Jesus did in fact sin, probably did sin, probably committed some of the same sins that David committed. We just don't know about them because the gospel writers hid all of that. The gospel writers didn't want you to know it. They wanted to present Jesus as God in the flesh. So therefore, their, perce- their perception is, is that Jesus is a sinner just like us, just a little bit better than us. Not necessarily perfect, by no means, but he's something better than us, but not really God in the flesh. That's one perception. The other perception is, is that Jesus is in fact absolutely, completely, and perfectly pure in every way. He never made a, he never sinned in his thoughts, he never sinned in his deeds, and he never sinned in what he said. Guess what position I'm in? Guess guess what side of the equation I'm on? I'm on that one. Let me show you why. Jesus breaks this cycle that we see. We have 41 generations ahead of Jesus. And in all of those 41 generations, whether their stories are known or unknown, what do we have? We have brokenness, sin, disobedience, and quite frankly, quite a bit of evil going on. But notice in verse 16, let's jump all the way down to verse 16. We get to Jesus. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew does something here. And we would expect this, again, probably the way that Matthew was wired, the way he thought we could expect this. He slips something in here that's very subtle, but we've got to pay attention to it. Because what Matthew's going to show us is, is not only did Jesus break the cycle, he's altogether different than all those who've come before him. Now, the Jewish people knew that that Messiah had to be a Jewish person, had to be a descendant of Abraham, but more specifically, had to be a descendant of David. So Matthew has gone at great lengths to show that, but there's something much more you need to see. In all of those 41 generations, what do we have? We have a father begatting a son. If you're a King James fan, you see that word begat. There's a father who has a son. That son then has a son, and then that son has a son. And then along the journeys, we have names inserted like Tamar, or Rahab, or Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. But what we have all the way through this genealogy, just like the ones we see in the Old Testament, is father has a son, that son has a son, that son has a son, and we track it all the way down. Names we can't pronounce, names that are quite frankly, even if we tried, we'd probably mess it up really bad, just really odd names, but nonetheless, father begetting son. And then we get to Jesus, we get to verse 16, and and Matthew completely flips the cycle. He completely flips the pattern. Look what he says. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Totally different pattern than all those other begats. Why is that? It's because Matthew's given us a preview of something. I want you to pay close attention to this particular phrase. It says, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom? You see that of whom? Now, the first question we've got to ask here is when we get to that phrase, is Matthew saying that Jesus is the the result of Joseph and Mary? All right? Now, remember, as we're reading into Matthew, we haven't gotten to the full Christmas story yet. Matthew's setting the table for us. So at this moment, he's saying to those who would write or read his letter, his gospel, he would say... Is, is Jesus the product of Joseph and Mary? Maybe, maybe they actually did come together. Maybe they did conceive. 
Or, or maybe Jesus is the result of a Samaritan and Mary. Or maybe Jesus is the result of a Roman and Mary. But, but of whom, this is the very question the Pharisees are asking, of whom was Jesus born? Well, Matthew does something that's not as clear in your English as it is in the Greek. You see that word whom? What they would do with this Greek language that you don't see in your English is that word, that pronoun there would be assigned either a a masculine gender or a feminine gender to, to let us know, okay, who is this talking about? Well, in the Greek language, in all of the other begats, in all of those others, it's always masculine. This father has this son, and this son has this son, all the way down, all 41 of those generations, until we get to verse 16, and get this, Matthew intentionally takes the Greek word that's behind the word whom, and it's a feminine pronoun pointing back to Mary. In other words, it's as though Matthew is saying, right here in the text, uh, Joseph, he's part of the equation, but he's not the main part. Jo Joseph, yes, earthly father, but not the father of Jesus. And then he says, he goes so far to say, Mary is the one by whom Jesus is born. Okay, but then there's one other thing that Matthew does here that's quite incredible. He says, Mary, of whom Jesus, look at this, was born. That same word is what the King James translates into begat, was born of. Well, in the Greek language, again, you can't see it as well in your English. We have what we have here is called the divine passive. It's a passive word. The, the Greek word is ganao, ganao. And in that word that means begat or gave birth to or son of, what we have here in that particular word right there, he does something else. He makes it a passive word. Passive meaning, okay, who is the one who is the result of Jesus being born? Is it Mary? Well, in that moment, instead of just saying Mary, which would imply that Mary, it wasn't Joseph. It wasn't Joseph. We already said that. But, but maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was a Samaritan. Maybe it was a Roman. But it had to be an earthly father, right? Matthew says right there in the Greek behind your English language, it says Jesus was born a passive. In other words, somebody else was involved, but it's not anyone in the immediate context. Not Joseph. Not a Samaritan. Not a Roman. Somebody else. Well, we know what happens next. God overshadows, overshadows Mary. Mary's able to conceive in her womb without the participation of Joseph, a Samaritan, or a Roman, or anyone else. A miracle happens in that moment. Now, why was that miracle required? Why is it that in that moment, instead of being the result of Joseph and Mary, or Samaritan and Mary, and a Roman and Mary, why is this important? Because the only way for Jesus to offer a rescue to us is for him to be born outside of the tradition of sin and rebellion. That's the only way he could ever rescue you. It's the only way he could rescue me. If Jesus was a sinner, if Jesus committed sin like David or like Abraham or like Isaac, there is no way that Jesus could save anyone else. If he was a sinner, just a good man, a sinner who was a little bit better in control of his sin than you and I are, if that's all Jesus is, then there is no way that Jesus could save you from your sins. There is no way that he could be a viable sacrifice on a cross for our sins. Jesus had to be the perfect Son of God, and so he is. And Matthew is hinting to that right here in this genealogy. All of that sin and brokenness. All of that evil. All that David did, and Abraham did, and Isaac did. All of that. All of those cycles. Well, it's all broken. When we come to verse 16. 
What's really interesting is that both with Abraham and Jacob and Judah and David, all of them were told in their day that there would be one who would come. Abraham would be told the nations would be blessed from your offspring. How could that even be possible? What was, was the, were the nations blessed by Jacob? No. Judah? No. Jesus is the only one that fits that description. He is the one that by dying on a cross and resurrecting, the entire nation, the entire world has been blessed generation after generation after generation. He would tell Jacob the same thing. Judah, at the moment that Jacob is blessing Judah near the end of Jacob's life in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob would tell Judah, there will be one that comes from you who will hold an iron scepter in his hand and he will rule the world, he'll rule the nations and everyone will bow down to it. Was that, was that Perez and Zerah by Tamar? No. Anybody else? What about David? David was the one who unified the nation. Maybe, maybe it was, no, David failed. Jesus is the only one who fits that description. All the way down to David where God told David there'd always be somebody on his throne, that there would be a leader who would come, who would, who would bring the nation to power once again, and that all the nations would be under his leadership. Was that Solomon? No, Solomon had 900 concubines. He was a little busy to rule the world and ultimately failed because of his pride. Jesus is the only one who fulfills all of the promises that was made to these men at the time they lived. And I have to imagine that all of those men were longing for something greater than the mess they found themselves in. Just a few things I want you to consider. First of all, Jesus is a Messiah for all kinds of people. Jesus didn't just come for the Jewish people. And, and likewise, he didn't just come for Gentiles. He came for all people. And the reality is, is that the brokenness that's in your family the ones who failed you, the ones who have made your life horrible. Jesus came for them as well. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which, that which are lost. The, the people you're getting ready to get together with over the holidays, the ones you'd rather not see, the ones you'd rather not have to sit across the table from, the one you'd rather not have to put a smile on your face and act as though that thing didn't happen back there, Jesus came for that person sitting across the table from you who's wronged you. Jesus' blood was shed that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is the Messiah for all kinds of people, all these people that we see all these people we see in his family tradition, his family line, ultimately was coming to bring about the Messiah. Number two, Jesus' family tree reveals yet again that God is at work in our world in real time. I mean, look at that. We got 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And Matthew lists out for us, here's how we know that Jesus fulfills, checks all the boxes of what the prophet said about him. And not only that, that Jesus broke the cycle of all of that sin and all of that brokenness when Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, not of Joseph, not of a Roman soldier, not of a Samaritan. God was at work in all of this. Could it be that, that in all the brokenness of your family and in my family, that God is at work? We don't always see it. We don't always feel it. It always, doesn't always make the hair stand up on the back of our necks as though we feel something. But can it be that God is at work? If God was at work in all of this brokenness 
for 42 generations to bring about Jesus, that, that certainly God is at work in your life, God is at work in your family, in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the hatred, in spite of the anger, God is at work there. And what he asks you to do during these holidays is to simply see that and, and worship him and honor him for it. Number three, Jesus' family tree shows us that God can use anyone for his purposes. That God can use the most broken people. That God can use the people even furthest from him, even people that don't believe in him. God can still use it because he's sovereignly in control. It is faith in Jesus that breaks the cycle. Yes, Jesus has come. Yes, born of a virgin. Yes, God and man at the same time. But those facts themselves don't change who you are. Those facts by themselves don't break the cycle in your family. Those facts by themselves, oh, while they're true and you believe them, until you act on faith in that, then the cycle just continues. I had a conversation that's been a while back now with someone that came by to, to talk about some things, and it was family brokenness. And this, this person told me that it was that their family, their family, even though they had problems, if it had not been for a great-grandparent that had put their faith in Jesus, this person said, I don't know where our family would be. It was because of that patriarch years before that put their faith in Jesus that turned the whole family towards Jesus. And from that point on, people kept coming to faith because the family was involved in church and engaged in hearing the gospel. But it was because of that one great-grandparent that turned towards Christ and turned away from addiction that changed the entire family dynamic. And I'm here to tell you, that what will break the cycle in your family, what will break the pain, what will finally heal those wounds is none other than this one born of a virgin, both God and man. Faith in him, living for him, loving him, representing him. When you're sitting across the table from that person that quite frankly you'd rather not see, it's in that moment that Jesus' name needs to come up and how he's changed your life. Could be that that whole dinner party you're getting ready to have Maybe Jesus is saying, that's your mission field. That's where I'm sending you. So that you can be a conduit of my love and my grace to someone who needs to hear it. Father in heaven, I know over the next many weeks, a lot of families in this room and those watching online this morning have a lot of events and family get-togethers to go to. But what if, rather than dreading it, that, Father, we see it as an opportunity to be your hands and feet. What if the cycle of pain, the cycle of brokenness is broken in one single moment by simply some kindness and some gentleness, a conversation about the gospel? Maybe in that moment, the cycle is broken. Father, this world is broken and getting darker every day. But the fact remains is that your people are called to be light. And sometimes, Lord, the darkest places are not somewhere down the street, not somewhere halfway around the world. Sometimes the darkest places are right in our own homes and our own families. Father, I know the struggle. The struggle's real in that we often wrestle with talking with our family about the gospel because they know us. They know our failures, our shortcomings. But Father, it's in that moment in all of our shortcomings that your grace speaks the loudest. 
that yes, Lord, we're not all that, that we're supposed to be, but Lord, thank you, we're not who we used to be. So Father, I, I pray that as we move forward together into these holidays, that we would keep the main thing the main thing, even when it comes to that dinner table. Well, we would prefer and remain, prefer to remain quiet because of past hurt. May we speak up, may we speak boldly, and may the cycle be broken. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.